Hello, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood, and I'm very happy that Comfort Eero, Crisis Group's Interim Vice President, is joining me today as co-host. Comfort, hi. Hello, nice to be back on the show. So today we're going to talk about the fighting in Ethiopia's northern region of Tigray. The stories coming out of the region are horrific. Human rights groups accuse all sides of atrocities. Media reports suggest that rape is being used as a weapon of war. Eritrean troops, who are fighting alongside the Ethiopian army against Tigrayan forces, have been accused of several massacres. The humanitarian situation is also dire. The UN says 4.5 million of the region's estimated 6 million people need assistance, with many areas inaccessible. The UN warns there's a risk of famine. Our immediate priority is the well-being of the people of Tigray and ensuring those in need urgently receive humanitarian assistance. Uh, human rights and international uh, humanitarian law need to be upheld. The EU supports any action contributing to the de-escalation of the tensions. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed promised a quick law enforcement operation to deal with what he called the traitors of Tigray's People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. Before Abiy came to power in 2018, the TPLF had dominated Ethiopia's ruling party, holding power for decades. The TPLF rules saw rapid economic development and also considerable repression. Since coming to power, Abiy fell out with TPLF leaders. He accused them of obstructing his reforms and supporting rebel groups. For their part, TPLF leaders say Abiy unfairly demonised them. They also distrusted the Prime Minister's peace deal with Eritrean President Isaias Ifewaki, for which Abiy won the Nobel Peace Prize. The trigger came in November last year when Tigrayan forces overran a federal military base, killing federal forces that resisted. An offensive by the Ethiopian army into Tigray started shortly afterwards. I believe that peace is an affair of the heart. Peace is a labor of love. Sustaining peace is hard work, yet we must cherish and nurture it. So the clip we just heard was Abiy's acceptance speech for the Nobel Peace Prize. That seems a long time ago. Now Ethiopian forces are bogged down in what appears to be a grinding insurgency in Tigray. The federal offensive seems to have opened the door for Eritrean forces to rampage through parts of the region. Amhara militias are on the ground too. The Amhara are another of Ethiopia's ethnic communities and their forces have seized areas that they argue Tigrayans took from them decades ago. The question is how can Abiy end the war? He refuses to talk to TPLF leaders, yet their defeat appears unlikely given the support they enjoy in Tigray. Getting the Eritreans and the Amhara forces out is also critical, but it's not clear how Abiy can do that. To make matters worse, Ethiopian troops are also fighting with Sudanese forces over a disputed border area. This makes Abiy even more dependent on Eritrean forces in Tigray. To talk about all of this, we're joined by Maruti Mutiga, Crisis Group's Horn of Africa director, who's speaking to us from Nairobi. There are a few better people to talk to about Horn of Africa politics. Mariti, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Good to be here. So, Mariti, let's start with what's happening on the ground in Tigray. The Ethiopian army quickly recaptured towns, but fighting seems to be continuing in other areas. How, how does it look now? By all accounts, we are staring at a really protracted stalemate. Um, as you said, Ethiopian federal forces surprised many of us with the lightning fast advance into Mekele uh, in, in the middle of, of November. Um, they killed or captured several of the Tigrayan leaders. 
destroyed most of the heavy equipment that the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front had amassed, and they marched into Mekele with surprising ease. Things have changed since. The Tigrayans now refashioned into the Tigray Defense Forces have regrouped. They occupy much of central rural parts of central Tigray. And what we have now is essentially a zoned out battlefield. In the north, the Eritreans occupy much of that area. Nobody really knows what's going on, except that we've had credible reports of considerable abuses. In the western parts of southern Tigray, the militia from the adjoining Amhara region uh, predominate. And then in the capital and in many of the major towns, the federal forces are in control. So you have all the ingredients of what potentially will be a long running, grinding battle for dominance. None of the parties appear able to deal the other decisive blow, given that you have um, a federal side that's very determined to deal a final uh, knockout blow against the TPLF. Given that the TPLF commands very considerable popular support, you have the makings of a long war that will come at a very high cost for the people of Tigray. So Mariti, the, the Tigrayan forces, they are, as you say, they haven't been defeated. But what are their supply lines? I mean, how are they getting weapons? Borders are closed from what I understand. They've lost a lot of their heavy weaponry. But how are they arming themselves? So two things. They, when you look across the world, insurgencies tend to thrive with the longer a war lasts and also the greater the degree of popular support they can call upon. So the Tigrayans perceive that their key goal at this moment is survival, that the longer this goes on, the greater the cost, human cost, but also material to the federal forces, to the Eritreans, to the Amhara, the greater it will be and the better their chances of possibly opening up some supply lines at a certain point. Uh, secondly, they command considerable public support. It may not be because people like the TPLF, I think it's not coincidental that they have rebranded to the Tigray Defense Forces, but it's because many Tigrayans see their cause as essentially just. They see the federal forces as having overplayed their hand, as having worked with their historic enemies to rampage through much of Tigray. And so they, for now, are relying on support from the rural masses. They hope the longer this goes on, they might get better supply lines, possibly from outside the country. But for now, they're playing a game of survival, a waiting game, and a game that's designed to make sure that they cannot be crushed in this very delicate phase of the war. Marithi, um, thank you very much. Just listening to how you're sort of characterising the, the, the battlefield picture on the ground, another sort of concern has been around the humanitarian situation. Just how bad is it today, you know, after, you know, the war has continued since November? We know that there was a double whammy before the conflict uh, one of the worst locust invasions for decades. And also the conflict tragically broke out right before the harvest season. Um, even before the war, 1.6 million people within the region depended on support to, to feed their families. Uh, this is a chronically food insecure part of Ethiopia. And we hear from all accounts, including from the interim administration, that up to 900,000 people remain displaced from their homes. The UN estimated at the turn of the year, 4.5 million out of a region of only 6 million people needed support. Adisababa says that more aid is coming through. They are granting more access. Access. Uh, but the problem is we don't know what the geographic scope of that support is. It's not clear at all that any support is getting to the areas held by the Eritreans. Uh, and it's also not clear that any 
is trickling into the areas held by the Tigray Defense Forces. I think the most important point to note is that if there is a humanitarian disaster in this part of the world, the lesson from history is that this will stiffen the resolve of the resistance, this might prolong the conflict, and it's right that so many people are paying attention to this question of delivering humanitarian assistance urgently. Marithi, you've painted a very grim picture um, of the situation on the ground. This is not how it was supposed to, to be. Now, what does um, Prime Minister Habi hope to do going forward? Because this was not the, the, the outcome he predicted. You know, you talked about a, a knockout blow, but this is very different today. One of the striking things about this conflict is that it's viewed very differently at home and abroad. One thing about Abi is that he's a masterful communicator. At home, he's cast this as a just war. He's portrayed the TPLF as a group that could not swallow its loss of power in 2018, as one that has sabotaged the administration all over the map. And he's especially latched onto the fact that the TPLF fired the first shots when they attacked the Northern Command on that November. So, of course, the military occupies a special place in the psyche of the nation, as in many parts of the world. And he has cast the TPLF as unpatriotic, with the PM playing the heroic role of taking on the TPLF. The reality, of course, is much more complicated, but we have to admit that Abi enjoys very considerable domestic support, and his support is probably stronger now than it was before the conflict. But then, as we know, the reality on the ground can really change very quickly, and people have to take a much more realist conception of things. There's no question that there have been grave violations of human rights in the course of this war. This cannot simply be swept under the carpet. Many of them have been confirmed by the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, and there will probably be a legal reckoning. Also, Ethiopia is in a far weaker position internationally now than it was at the start of, of the war. The country has faced many crises and those continue to fester. Let's not forget that up to 2 million people were displaced in various parts of Ethiopia uh, between 2018 and 2019. The tensions that undergird those communal uh, um, uh, spots of violence remain very live. We now see a contestation between the two biggest elites from the two biggest communities, the Oromo and the Amhara. And so a lot of challenges lie ahead. Um, however, when you ask what Abi's goals are, you know, he is a risk taker. Uh, he's, he's been riding a high wire act. His immediate goal is to march quickly to elections and gain domestic legitimacy. What comes next will be even more interesting and potentially perilous. Abi potentially will seek to change the political system within Ethiopia. And the, the reason that we at Crisis Group have consistently advocated that you need a degree of dialogue, that you need conversations with the representatives of the legitimate opposition um, is, the, is because the reason Ethiopia has known so much instability over the past century is partly because none of the leaders tried to cultivate consensus about their vision for the country. If Abi is going to try and change the political system, it's essential that he does this with as much consensus, as much societal buy-in as is feasible. So is it is it wrong to assume then that the TPLF has badly miscalculated entering into this war and to take on Abiy? 
Unfortunately, there's no question that the TPLF engaged in a catastrophic miscalculation, possibly because of an asymmetry of information, possibly because they underestimated how determined their foes were, possibly because they overestimated their own capacity. This clearly was a miscalculation. Uh, but what's more important comfort is that at this stage, it's not really crucial to litigate what caused the conflict. I think what's more important is how do you end it? And perhaps this is where all sides need to recognize that none of them can win this war. This is a political dispute that cannot be settled on the battlefield. And it really is essential that they recognize that they will need to engage with each other to find a resolution that does not come at such a high cost. So Mariti, we've talked about Prime Minister Abiy, we've talked about the TPLF miscalculating. Let, let's talk about Eritrea. Uh, what about Esaias Afwerki? There's this old enmity between Asmara and the TPLF. Some reports suggest there's really been this sort of scorched earth approach by Eritrean forces, destroying property, destroying food supplies. You know, it's not easy to read uh, Isaias's intentions, but, but what does he hope to get out of this? As you said, it's very difficult to know what Asmara wants. I remember a diplomat based there saying that, you know, they dare not speak to ordinary Eritreans for their own safety. And so they were re re reduced to this parlor game of watching the body language of officials on official television. But then when you look at um, Isaiah's history, when you look at things he said in the past, it's very possible to discern a couple of threads. One is that he definitely intended to give the TPLF a bloody nose. When you look back at the history of the Eritrean and Tigrayan resistance, particularly to the military dictatorship of Mengistu Hill Mario, the Eritreans were the senior partners. It has always rankled with desires that the TPLF Basically, their junior partners led by Meles Zenawi, um, the, the former prime minister of Ethiopia, then quickly took over what was this, the, the major part of, of the territory that they fought over. They became the leaders of Ethiopia. They became darlings of the West. They fashioned the region in their image and Meles emerged as this titanic figure. And just to jump in, Mariti, that's Mele Zanawi, who ruled Ethiopia for, you know, for, for, for many years uh, and passed away in 2012. Yes, absolutely. And, and so um, the, the, the Eritrean regime has often cast its raison debt as getting um, a kamampans against the Tigrayans, paying them back in their coin for basically isolating Eritrea, uh, particularly after the bloody border war between 1998 and 2000. And that undoubtedly must have been one of the war aims. I think secondly, the Eritreans worry that a resurgent TPLF will aim its guns at Asmara. The TPLF perceives that Ethiopia has turned its back on them, has persecuted them, has been very, uh, you know, engaged in discrimination. Uh, Addis Ababa has aimed its campaign of targeted um, uh, discrimination against the Tigrayans. And so the Tigrayans perceive that their future lies within their neighborhood. The Eritreans most certainly are not uh, resting easy. They worry that the TPLF, when it, if it comes, if it resurges and comes back to power, would be a political and economic threat to Asmara. Third, um, the, the Eritreans have had this grand vision of trying to forge some sort of alliance within what some people call the classic horn. So basically bring together Somalia, Ethiopia, 
Eritrea, and possibly Djibouti into some sort of economic and political alliance that, uh, that then will allow Eritrea to play a bigger role, uh, given that it's a relatively small country with a relatively small population. Some have also mentioned that um, Isaias ultimately uh, sees a return to the era of some sort of confederation with Ethiopia, a soft border between Eritrea and Ethiopia, more and more trade. Uh, but this vision, of course, would need them uh, to have dealt a crushing blow to the TPLF. In reality, while Isaias certainly succeeded in toppling the TPLF, I think he may have miscalculated in terms of underestimating the resolve of the Tigrayans. There's no question that the resistance within Tigray is very popular. Um, uh, it is gaining in, in strength by most accounts. And also the methods that um, Isaiah seeks to export are very centralizing, possibly authoritarian, and might not really have too much of a market. So the, the goals of Isaiah's are not easy to discern. He certainly seeks to reassert Eritrea's role within the region. He seeks to play perhaps a role similar to what the TPLF did during its long preeminence. Success is by no means guaranteed. So, Mariti, in light of what's happened in, in Tigray, if we look at look back sort of with hindsight at that peace deal between Ethiopia and Eritrea, uh, what twenty eighteen, uh, for which Abiy won the Nobel Peace Prize, I mean the the rapprochement between Abiy and Esaias that looks a little bit different now when you consider what's just happened in Tigray. So was the peace deal really about peace between the two countries, or was it about you know from Isaias's perspective at least was it about dealing with the TPLF? I remember being in Addis Ababa um, shortly after that peace deal was struck. Uh, and one of the people that we were working with, one of the drivers that was taking us around, was beyond was was beside himself with joy. He told me that part of his family was based in Eritrea. He very much looked forward to taking a bus, going to visit his family. There was a genuine degree of joy uh, at that moment. It was a considerable achievement, one of the longest frozen conflicts on the continent and was rightly held uh, as a milestone. I think without question that Asmara saw it as a first step in their long battle to uh, bring down the TPLF a notch. The TPLF was largely excluded in the discussions that led up to the, to the, to the deal. It was not institutionalized at all. It was a deal between two men. Um, I would say that, yes, almost certainly Isaias as an actor that often plays a long game possibly saw this absolutely through the prism of bringing down the TPLF. For Abi, I'm not so sure. I think it, he might genuinely have aimed to lead to, uh, to hope that the, the, the deal would lead to a glorious period of trade, uh, of engagement between Eritrea and Ethiopia. I remember his government engaging with some actors in the Gulf, talking about railways all the way to the port, um, in Eritrea, you know, to Asab, uh, to Masawa, uh, they thought about reopening the whole region. And so while Abi may not initially have aimed that this, this should lead to war, I think he could be accused of a degree of naivete in not understanding that Isaiah's ultimate goal absolutely was to topple the TPLF. Marithi, sticking with the with the region and looking at Ethiopia's border, Sudan, which is also going through a very fragile sort of transition. I mean, I think one of the concerns that we've always had was that this conflict would spread not just within the um, borders of, 
of Ethiopia, but also beyond the borders. And now we do have this new tension between Sudan and, and, and Ethiopia. Um, what What is your understanding of why we've now seen sort of border fighting between um, both countries and how, what do you see the projection going forward for, for both countries? So neither the region nor Sudan or Ethiopia can afford an interstate conflict. Um, these are two absolutely critical countries, but they are also countries that are essentially bankrupt. You know, when you look at Sudan, staggering levels of debt, uh, both Sudan and Ethiopia are often listed in the list of the 20 countries with the highest rates of inflation in the world. Um, so they absolutely cannot afford uh, to march into war. Unfortunately, you have a situation here where various camps within the two countries perceive that they might draw some benefits from conflict. In Sudan, you have a situation of fragmented authority. You have the civilians on one hand and the military on the other. The military is due to hand over power to the civilians. All sides have been jockeying for popular support and they um, see advantages in rallying around the flag and have been beating the drums of war and casting the border confrontation as an effort to restore Sudanese uh, sovereignty and, and to, to, to regain land which they perceive to be unfairly occupied by Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, the internal dynamics are again quite complicated. You have elites from the Amhara region that are marching to an election in which they will face stiff resistance from ethno-nationalist parties within the Amhara region. And therefore, they see advantage in taking a very bellicose approach in, in casting themselves as defending Amhara nationalism. So this is a, a strip of land called at Fashaga that's very fertile, primarily settled by Amhara and some Tigrayan farmers um, that some perceive historically as being part of Sudan, but which Ethiopian farmers have settled without really having land rights, but basically been allowed to live there with the Sudanese owning the land and the, the, the farmers um, are tilling it. So it has been a classic successful soft border situation. But there are various parties within the two sides that see advantage in beating the drums of war. Thankfully, none of them seriously seem to uh, desire war. However, when you have two sides that are very heavily armed, facing off at close quarters, the, the danger of miscalculation is very high. So I think this is a situation where you need concerted mediation possibly led by the African Union, which has expressed some interest in taking part to help both sides to de-escalate, to impress upon both Addis and Khartoum that they need to bring tensions a degree lower and to avoid the danger of miscalculation, perhaps a joint military commission, perhaps some sort of tripwire mechanism so that both sides can communicate with each other. That might help to bring the tensions down a notch. But as, as I said at the top, neither can afford an interstate war. Neither can, an afford, uh, can afford an interstate war, but the, the, the likelihood of miscalculation is very real, Marithi, and I wanted just to press you um, about whether Sudan might support or open supply lines to TPLF tensions getting worse. I mean, when you look at his old historical alliances, and, you know, there are some alliances between Tigrayans and, and Sudanese, and it's worth just probing this question further with, with you. 
So Sudan has historically been a major staging ground for insurgencies within northern, northern Ethiopia. Um, the, when, when the Italians occupied fascist Italy, occupied Addis Ababa, the, the insurgency that ultimately toppled them was absolutely set up mostly in eastern Sudan. So history teaches us even more recently that the TPLF and the Eritreans were very successful in using uh, the, the territory of Eastern Sudan as a staging ground for their own long and successful insurgency against the Mengistu regime. This time, I think um, the, the, the Ethiopians and the Eritreans very early on took steps to seal the border, but also to appeal to Khartoum not to support the Tigrayans. The Tigrayans have long had a lot of trade links to Eastern Sudan, an area that adjoins um, their, their territory, and one in which they obviously have deep ties given the insurgent um, history I just mentioned. This, without question, is a danger. It's a danger if um, relations between Ethiopia and Sudan do not improve. So I think it's essential that both sides try to lower tensions. When you talk to the Ethiopians, they say they have properly sealed the border, uh, that they will not easily let supplies through. When you talk to the Sudanese, they say they can easily send support through. When you talk to, the, um, to the, both Asmara and Addis, they argue that they also can sponsor proxy conflicts within Sudan. So you can see the danger is very real. It's absolutely essential that all sides recognize that this will be a lose-lose proposition and take steps to ease tension. So, Mariti, if we go back a few years, you had these two revolutions uh, in 2018. Mass protests brought Prime Minister Abiy to power uh, in Ethiopia. And then in Sudan, the sort of even more remarkable transition in some ways, sustained protests led to this coup against uh, long-serving ruler uh, Omar al-Bashir and eventually this deal between the military and civilians to, to share power. And it was really this moment of optimism. These two kind of critical countries in the region had seen these 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 sort of remarkably positive uh, transitions. But now Ethiopia is at war in Tigray uh, with these sort of terrible stories emerging from the region. And although there's still you know, plenty of positive news uh, in Sudan, the two countries are fighting along the border, tensions over the dam increased. And as you say, you know, all sides are sort of beating, beating the drums of, of patriotism. So has all the optimism faded or, you know, how should we, how should we view at the moment what the legacies of these revolutions are? It's, a, it's an important question, and I think we should never lose sight of the fact of how remarkable these transitions were at the beginning. You had in the TPLF a party that fought its way to power. Such parties across the continent very rarely give up uh, their hold on power easily. But then you had this sustained campaign largely peaceful of primarily Oromo and Amhara youth that really came to the, the, the gates of what is regarded as the capital of the continent. I remember being in Addis uh, at some point um, at the end of 2017, early 2018, and supplies were running short, roads were being closed, diplomats were worried about whether they would be able to get supplies within the supermarkets. It was a remarkable achievement by Ethiopian elites that they found a way to resolve it peacefully, that they found a way to ease the TPLF out of power, and therefore to usher in the change that brought in Prime Minister Abiy into office in April 2018. And again, as you said, in Sudan, very striking, very remarkable protest movement, diverse, 
peaceful, very sustained, and ultimately achieved a very significant uh, coup in toppling uh, Omar al-Bashir was very entrenched. So we have to celebrate what that meant in terms of the youth of today being more aspirational, demanding more, seeking better governance, and I think that's still a cause for optimism. Unfortunately, it seems elites in both countries seem to be squandering what is a huge success, um, what was a huge success at the beginning. As I, as I mentioned, both Addis Ababa and Mekele miscalculated. They all marched into war, you know, in a way that was quite irresponsible. And in Khartoum, we worry that all sides are intent on shoring up their own positions and not doing enough, for example, to rescue the sclerotic economy that's in very deep pain at the moment. You have rates of inflation that basically have trebled since Bashir left power. So while the elites have let their countrymen down, there's no question that these transitions were still massive achievements by the street, by aspirational youth. It's probably not too late despite the staggering a massive cost we've seen. It's not too late for elites within the two countries, at least to go back to the spirit of dialogue, the spirit of compromise that engendered change at the beginning. So I agree, it's quite grim, but maybe it could still be rescued. Mariti, if you sort of think about what's happening in the region, is it also sort of about Ethiopia, the country, and the region all sort of dealing with the aftermath of Meles Zanawi's death? Meles, you know, you talked about Ethiopia's long-serving leader who passed away in 2012. And, you know, I don't want to, don't want to romanticise his, his influence, but he was sort of this towering figure over Ethiopian politics. But also sort of his relationships with other regional politicians, they sort of define politics in the region. Um, and ha- how much of sort of what's happening now, obviously in Ethiopia, but also more broadly, is a sort of a, a new order gradually emerging after his death? Without question, I think we are seeing that basically the old is dying to use the cliche, but the new is struggling to be born. You have a a, a context within the region where Ethiopian foreign policy was absolutely geared towards keeping the region reasonably stable so that they could concentrate on their own goals domestically. And so uh, Meles found a way to uh, peel Sudan away from the Egyptian camp, which was a considerable achievement. He found a way to have a compact with the other powerful country within the region, Nairobi. He basically asked them to subcontract foreign policy to the Ethiopians who've been at this game much longer than the Kenyans. He found a way to maintain a modicum of stability in in Somalia that was fashioned around um, some degree of power sharing internally. And he also found a way ultimately to box in the Eritreans and essentially isolate them. Now, you have a momentous change within Ethiopia. You have suddenly the fashioning of new alliances I I personally think that um, a lot of us as analysts underestimated how disruptive these major transitions can be and how difficult it is to fashion a new compact. Um, It's going to be difficult. It's going to be an ongoing challenge. Uh, But yes, this this is going to be the struggle that the region will have to face up to going forward. And especially there are contenders to fill that gap We worry that the Eritreans are very determined to be the ones that fashion what what comes after the Meles Compact. And it's essential that they they find counterweights. They find counterweights in Addis, 
in Nairobi, and that there is greater region-wide consensus about the path forward. Ruthie, this is fascinating, and I, I have lots of other questions that I wanted to ask you, but I wanted to bring it back to the origins of our conversation and how you know, the fighting might might end. I mean, you've both you you said quite clearly in your in your presentation that both sides are fixated on a military victory. Um, you know, the Tigrayans focused on a military victory, but also survival, and that the federal government's own intent is to is to crush um, the crush the armed um, resistance, but. But how do you see it for your, from your from where you sit in um, in in Nairobi? How do you see this play playing out? Because neither side have attained what they what they they sought to to attain when they launched the the fight in in, in November. Unfortunately, comfort the short term projections are grim. You have, as you said, all sides that are determined to achieve victory on the battlefield. Uh, but then this will prove elusive for all the reasons we've discussed. I think this calls for really concerted international um, uh, efforts at this stage and potentially led by the African Union uh, with considerable support from outside. The African Union, of course, institutionally struggles when it comes to dealing with powerful member states. And what you could potentially have as an option is maybe have some sort of informal group of elder statesmen within the continent, possibly the South Africans who have a good relationship um, with Addis Ababa, possibly leaders, former heads of, of the African Union, such as Rwanda's Paul Kagame, uh, the Kenyans currently, uh, both members of the UN Security Council and the AU Peace and Security Council, and maybe the current um, head of the African Union, uh, Shisekedi, um, the leader of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Engage with all sides, try and impress upon them that the cost of this war will ultimately be very high. It will be high when it comes to Ethiopia's international reputation. It has already been high to the people of Tigray. And let's never forget that the TPLF historically is one of the movements that was genuinely very close to its people. It began as a grassroots movement rooted in the countryside with very strong support from farmers that felt very oppressed uh, by Addis Ababa. And so they have an incentive to spare the people of Tigray further suffering. So a path to a resolution to this conflict absolutely will require some degree of consensus building, some degree of talks between and among the various parties. And this will ultimately need that, despite it being a very difficult political decision, the Eritreans will ultimately need to withdraw uh, from Tigray uh, to, to, to take some of the poison out of popular sentiment about their presence there. At the same time, the area that the Amhara have annexed uh, from the disputed region within Tigray, this absolutely needs to be resolved, not through the force of arms, but through some degree of negotiation, through some uh, potential um, uh, channeling through, for example, the Boundary Commission of Ethiopia. Uh, because if it is simply annexed by force of arms, this will create eternal grievances that will reverberate not just in Tigray, but in many of the other disputed borderlands within Ethiopia. So I think the path to a resolution of conflict, this is very anodyne. It's, it's something we say all the time, but genuinely, none of the sides can win. And so ultimately, they do need to engage in political discussion. Thank you very much, Marithi. Thanks, everyone. Good to be here.
come for a really fascinating discussion from Mariti. Obviously, a very depressing picture coming out of, of, of Tigray, but he, you know, he really helped shed light on sort of what was going on and what the different different parties were up to and what they hoped to get out of it. You know, it's such a period of change in Ethiopia, but also sort of in, in, in Horn geopolitics. I don't know what you took from the conversation. Oh, there were so many moments of just like, wow, breathtaking insights into the mindset um, of various leaders. And it's, it's the stuff of crisis group, you know, getting to know your actors is the first step in sort of paving the way to conflict resolution or even defining a policy. And, you know, what's clear when you listen to Maruthi um, is the need to understand Abby's strategy going forward um, and the huge gamble he is taking by going to war with, with, with Tigray to seek a new path forward that he talked about. But I guess the question we're all asking, Richard, is will this strategy work? You know, at home, Abby has an enormous support and successfully has cast the TPLF as the aggressors. And he is the man making a sacrifice to save the country. Next month will be three years um, since Abiy um, came to power. And if we look at the man that came into power in 2018, the public persona, and what we have today, there is tension between Abiy, whose vision, you know, laid out in his philosophy of Medema, which is, you know, steeped in forgiveness, and which also stresses national unity, versus the Abbey of today who has gone to war and jailed his main opponent. So it's a really, um, it's it's going to be fascinating to watch how this all plays out. And the picture, the prognosis does not look very, very good. So I think that's one of my big takeaway from, from Maruthi's own insights into Abbey's own strategy. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Comfort Aero. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. If you want more of our work on the Horn of Africa in particular, then please do check out our podcast on the Horn of Africa. It's called The Horn. It's hosted by Alan Boswell. It's a, really a fantastic dive every other week into the region's politics. Thank you very much to our producers, May Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review, and we hope you join us again next week.